my very best to get this job that I so crave. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, this is weird. I'm doing this again. Uh, got a fan zone uh, match here coming up. We got a, our number two seed, Jacoby Bancroft, and our number three seed, uh, Cameron Holzman, in the semifinals of our fan zone tournament. Should be a really good one. I'm excited. You know, you know what? Like, and I always feel like the worst part of this is me talking. So I'll just kind of throw it to, you know, the other judges who are here because we got Kirk. We got Brooklyn. Let's start with Kirk. How you doing, Kirk? I'm doing good, Mark. Uh, glad to be here. Um, I think it's going to be a good match. Uh, I'm familiar uh, with one of these people uh, in uh, uh, what do we call this now? Is this still uh, Fan Zone? I would have changed the name because the name of the other league. But no, um, I've played Jacoby a couple times. Um, I have, uh, you know, that he. I know how uh, heated he can get and how he can get others. And um, I've never uh, officially battled with Cameron, but we've had our rows back and forth uh, off screen. So um, both these guys are good fighters, uh, good debaters. Uh, so it should be an interesting match. All righty. Brooklyn. Hello. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm doing great. Um, I think this is going to be a really good one. Uh, Cameron showed in his last match that he has taken some interest in terms of like, um, like load management in terms of like, like, like lighter on some questions and then other ones kind of, kind of going a little, little more aggressive. Um, whereas with Jacoby, I think his last match against Robert, I think it was a really good example of taking points that were kind of thrown at him um, and just tilting slightly to not only counteract that point, but get, get something else. So I think even for like, for Cam, for Cam, I think this is more like a, more of a like refined version of Nazario. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see how this plays out. I think it's two high caliber opponents. Uh, it sure is. Uh, why don't we go ahead and bring him in uh, one at a time. Uh, start with the number three seed, Cameron Holson. Here he is. Cameron, here for another fan zone match. I think you like it. Your room's blue. How you doing? I have never prepared less for a debate than this one I am about to compete in. <laughs> since, since my last match, which, yeah, played Nazario, went to the last question, some shit happened, and I don't really remember. I already blocked it from my memory. I have started a full-time job on top of my part-time job. And so... Basically, I am either at work, at work, or trying to sleep because I'm tired from work. So, I I remembered that this was a thing when Tim reminded us that this was going to be a thing with a message like yesterday or two days ago. And I went, oh, shit, I should probably take some notes. Um, and I spent about half an hour doing that, and then I passed out from my computer. So, this is going to be an interesting one, because me, the guy who... It was all about, oh, I spent a lot of time prepping to come with my arguments. This is me pulling pulling stuff out of my ass today. <laughs> well, hopefully you argue with your co-workers to prep a little bit more. We can only hope. Let's bring in Jacoby. Jacoby. Hello. How the hell are you? Um, I'm doing good. I'm nervous. Like, I'm always nervous. And I think that's even more per more pressure when Cam's saying, like, he took the bare minimum amount to study for all of this. And I just know now he's going to come in with some really good points and it's going to throw me off and it's going to do all those sort of things. But uh, it's going to be exciting. Um, Cam has beat me in a lot of other things. So, so, so it's like, I hope it's not like the triple hat tri trick, but like negative. For, for I think me. I beat you in Melee once. And that's literally it. <laughs> and fandom. You beat me in fandom, too. So oh, yeah, don't. 
Yes. Don't sell yourself Look, short there. You beat me fair and square in two separate places. Nowadays. But okay. It's yeah. It's, I'm, congratulations on the full time job and all the work that you're doing. Um, this is gonna be fun. Nervous as always. I say the same thing every time. I'm nervous and I'm excited and I'm excited and I'm nervous and uh, but uh, this will be interesting. I think. All right. The, oh. Heard it from them first. We're going to get a mediocre match today. All right. So, ready, guys. Uh, I hope so. Every time you judge, is like, that was a great match, guys. Like, that was one of the best. And, like, I just hope I want one guys, like, that was all right. First round for you to look at us square in the face and be like, that was the shittiest debate I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. It's like, we're just cutting it here, guys. Like, Bill gets Probably. the point. Probably won't happen. Well, this is how we do it. You guys know it, but I'll just explain it for anybody who's first time watching. You know, we're going to give you guys a question. And then you guys are each going to get a one-minute opening for your argument. Then you have a five-minute free form. Then you get a minute to close out each. Then at the end of that, the three of us, the judges here, will write down our whiteboards here. I got it over here. I won't show it because we all know I have it. Or I'm assuming Brooklyn and uh, I think Kurt had it, Kurt had it too. And there you go. And uh, we're going to uh, we're gonna pick who won. Majority gets one point. And the uh, first three points uh, wins a match. So, that's all I'll say. Let's just hit that Ted clip. All righty. I'll just fix this right here. Put me down there. Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and get We're going to start off with Jacoby's uh, fandom category, which came in the category Law and Order. And your question simply is, which two Law and Order franchises would, may, would have made the best crossover? Since this is a Jacoby's uh, category, he'll start us off. It's a one-minute opening when uh, you start talking. Uh, I think that John McClane and Axel Foley with their respective franchises would have made the best crossover. Their worlds are not only similar enough where I could easily see Axel fight any of McClane's villains and vice versa, or see their supporting characters interact like with Rosewood and Taggart teaming up with Sergeant Powell, but also at their core, these two characters are cut from the same cloth. They are at their best when they are fish out of water, but it's how they react to their circumstances. That's different. Axel likes to be, loud and flashy McLean is barely keeping it together it's an odd couple dynamic that i think will create the best franchise crossover these two characters have major weaknesses but i think pairing them up with one another almost fixes all of those weaknesses and the end result is something highly entertaining fits within uh their worlds and at the end of the day they can learn the most from each other and grow as characters which should be a point of any crossover that a franchise does so that's why uh uh, John McClane and Axel Foley franchises would have had a would have made a great crossover. Uh, great crossover. You didn't hear it. All <laughs> right. All right. Bye, Jacoby. And we're going to bring in Cameron. When I find him, there he is. And you will have one minute when you start talking. 
I think the thing that you want when you're crossing over two franchises is you want to take the core heart of both franchises and make sure that the two of them work together to create a cohesive product instead of clashing with each other where they don't work together. And that's why I chose Bad Boys and Beverly Hills Cop. Both of these franchises are comedy first, action second. They prioritize the dynamic between their characters, the snarky sense of humor, the irreverent comedy. And they still have these action sequences, but I think many people will admit that the action of both of them is probably the weakest part. By combining these two franchises, you give this new interesting dynamic where you update the dynamic between uh, between Will Smith and Martin Lawrence by adding in this new character. You give uh, Axel Foley this dynamic to play off of his fellow detectives. You have this great chance for this sense of comedy. You have this great chance for this lower level adventure where all of these cops really are people that are low level cops taken out of their regular everyday circumstances and thrust into something due to very personal reasons and very personal connections. And having that consistent thread is what makes it great. Time. Okay. We got all in. All right, with that, bring back in Jacoby for our five-minute freeform. And uh, just a reminder, if anybody's going on too long, you got to get that. Uh, please don't make me do that. And uh, I'll uh, bring the one-minute warning. And uh, five minutes, and you guys start talking. All right, um, I think your choice is kind of an odd one here because I think you picked the loud, boisterous, confident, suave Axel Foley to be paired with the loud and boisterous Marcus and the confident and suave Mike Lowry. You're crossing over characters who are too similar in personality. You said that you want to take the core heart and like deliver a cohesive project, but your problem is your characters are going to blend in like and disappear from each other, especially Axel Foley, who's going to have nothing to do. Mike and Axel both can't be the confident one, and Marcus and Axel both can't be the comic relief. You need to have two opposites kind of going at each other which is why something like john mcclain and axel foley work that much better see but the thing is adding axel actually improves the dynamic between mike and marcus because what he does is he now gives sort of this person to undercut and shift up that dynamic they have a little bit that after two or three movies frankly gets a little bit stale where it's the same thing over and over now you have someone where mike is no longer confident just being that suave confident person he has to step it up he has to go a little bit further Marcus can no longer be the more intelligent, laid-back person who comes up with the, with the good ideas. Axel is there to force them both into this new sense of insecurity where they have to take things in a new direction while still being themselves. See, I think now you're undercutting the Marcus and Mike dynamic, which over the course of three movies has solidified itself as one of the best, I think, bromances in any of these things. And the fact that you're trying to delegitimatize de both of these characters by saying like they need to they need to fall back but between what Axel is doing, I don't think it's going to work, which is why I think that works so much better with what you're saying than with, with McLean instead, who McLean is actually someone who is the exact opposite of Axel Foley in terms of personality, in terms of style, in terms of everything, where they could learn from each other in more organic ways and better ways than what you're saying and drive the franchise forward. You said uh, the action is the weakest part of the Bay franchise which is ridiculous but the fact that the action of actually my two franchises work well in tandem with each other to deliver something more cohesive. So first of all, I think that the, that even the production of the movies has admitted that Marcus and Mike's dynamic gets stale due to the fact that they put Mike basically in a coma for half of Bad Boys for Life and separate them. They make them no longer partners. And frankly, it works better because the two of them are separated and that dynamic is shifted because now they have changed into this new position. The problem with putting uh, John McClane and Axel Foley together is at the end of the day, 
Axel Foley going with John McClane, there is already a character or multiple characters even in the Die Hard franchise who I would rather see John McClane work with, like a Zeus, like even an Argyle who brings that fun, spunky energy, who he can play off of, have that snark, that sarcasm, that comedy, have that smarter, more intelligent person that Axel Foley being that witty person is. You have that from someone else. Bad Boys, Bad Boys as a franchise doesn't really have that person who can do both. It doesn't really have that person who can play the middle, be the middleman. And by having that person who can do that, you add a new element to this franchise. But it's weird that you're saying like there should be a middle character who does both what Micus and Mark do, but like separately because you don't need that because you have Mike and Marcus in that franchise together. You need Axel Foley specifically. We both chose Axel Foley for, for a reason because he is this very, this big important personality who's a great character on his own and he can bring out the best of the people around him. He fits better with John McClane's people instead of anyone in, in the world that Bad Boys is creating. I think because even if you look at the supporting characters like Taggart and Rosewood and all these cops who are in these Beverly Hills franchise of things that they're interacting with McLean's world works so much more organically than, than, than the bad boys over extreme world, which I don't think you can just slide anybody in as easily. The problem is I'm not going to a theoretical Beverly Hills cop and diehard crossover to see Rosewood and Taggart hang out with Al Powell. That's not why we go to these movies. We go to these movies to see our main characters. And frankly, I don't want to see a lesser version of the dynamic that we've already seen between someone like a John and a Zeus when I can instead see something new, something that shakes up a franchise that was getting a little bit stale. Something where we have these characters who are in more reasonable circumstances where John McClane moving forward is someone always stuck in these international terrorist events, all of these things. We saw in the Beverly Hills Cop sequels, especially number three, when Axel Foley gets stuck in these major widespread conspiracies, he gets infinitely worse because it's so out of his depth. By being in these lower level crimes like these drug rings, like these uh, DEA things with these detectives on the streets, it fits his strengths more and the two of them complement each other as a style of a movie. See, but... No, <laughs> I just I just disagree with that in terms of it. You keep bringing up Zeus as like, the, well, we already had Zeus in the franchise. I think Axel and Zeus are very different characters. And if anything, Zeus proves that McClane works best with somebody on his team, with somebody who can bring him out of the shell, who can be someone louder, someone boisterous. But then he also brings the funny because we the third movie of the Beverly Hills Cop uh, franchise, as you mentioned, is bad. And Axel Foley is bad in that because he's trying to play the McClane role in that movie. He needs to play the Axel Foley role, which means the movie would be better if there was a McLean and Foley working together to bring forward the comedy, to bring forward the action and bring forward the story. Time. Okay. There we go. Nice one, gentlemen. All right. This. We're going to start uh, with Cameron. He gets one minute to close out his argument. When he starts talking. At the end of the day, McLean and Foley clash too much. It's giving us a lesser version of something that we already have and the two tones that they have, as much as they are different and could be considered as complementing each other, are too far different. The types of crimes that they do, the types of situations that they're in, the types of ways they solve problems, it just wouldn't lead to anything getting done. Axel Foley fits within the already established dynamic, but freshens it up. It makes these other characters get pushed to these new limits. It allows them to tackle something more intimate, more personal of stakes, like the original Beverly Hills Cop, like Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2, and even Bad Boys for Life has. By putting him in there, you give the opportunity to get these fr this franchise of Bad Boys back to a more 
reasonable and contained thing where bad boys 2 is widely considered a bad movie because it goes insane it goes all over the place beverly hills cop bring it back to the original bring it back to the original bad boys content condense that story bring it back to these low-level cops living on the streets of these cities where they live where they grew up and being together working together having that fun fresh dynamic now with the trio now with them all going above and beyond instead of two characters who have no business being together doing something worse than we've already Time. seen all right then we have already seen it didn't happen. All right. I said it before you said time on my screen. Oh. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. Like it really matters. Jacoby, you have one minute. Cam just admitted in his closing argument that Axel Foley would make the Bad Boys franchise more contained and restricted and reasonable. But that's the issue right there. You don't want the Bad Boys franchise to be contained and reasonable. You go there for the explosions and for everything. He says that John McClane and Axel Foley clash too much. Good. I want them to clash because clashing creates a great dynamic for them to work together in order to solve whatever bigger threat is going to is going to happen in those movies. The clashing is good for the audience. It's good for a franchise. And that's so much better than Cam's alternative, which is him being very similar to Marcus and Mike, because then he's going to fade away. He says like, oh, because they can fix, they can be the same as each other. No, because why would Axel Foley uh, be, what's the point of him being suave and confident when Mike Lowry is suave and confident or the comic relief when Marcus is the comic relief. You need that clash in order to create a more successful franchise. And the world fits so much better as proven as Cam keeps saying like, oh, they need to bring it back to something different. They need to hone it in. No, but the, but the uh, Beverly Hills cop and the diehard franchise worlds already work together on an action level and it works better as a franchise. Okay. I think just franchise, I believe. I think so. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm I'm thinking I you know it's only my second day here guys. Okay. Just fix it all. There we go. Come down. There we go. Okay. I would like the record to say that I don't like the Bad Boys or Beverly Hills Cop franchises. <laughs> <laughs> now you tell us. Are you guys or, ready? Or 60% of the Die Hard. Yep. <laughs> All righty. Uh, I'll start us off. Um, I, I think for me, it was pretty simple. I, I, I ended up going with Jacoby. I, I just think as a whole... I, I, I feel like Jacoby more or less laid it out in, in his closing... Like I feel like what Cam was pitching isn't it isn't really what Bad Boys is, and I I kind of like the dynamic at least Jacoby is bringing up of at least what McLean and Axel Foley bring up is that how they would clash and kind of that and how that tension how that tension between the characters I think would probably just make a more interesting movie overall and probably would make whatever it, it seems like the best crossover, but uh. No, I, I went with Jacoby. Uh, Kirk, where'd you go? Um, it was a it was a tough one. It was a good fight because they both, I think, you know, were arguing their reasons for wanting to make their version of the movie well. Um, but it came down to closing arguments for me. I also went with Jacoby uh, because I think that uh, Jacoby just really sold on me that the clash and the different styles are better than you know the characters that fit in real well and are already kind of filling roles that exist within their own franchises. Um, so again. Um, well, they they both made me really think about it, but Jacoby just got edged out there at the end. Alrighty, uh, Brooklyn, uh, but it doesn't matter here. But where'd you go? You're muted, I believe. 
stealing Cody's bit. I, yeah, I got to pay homage to the champ. Um, yeah, I went with Jacoby. Um, I thought this was pretty pretty much tied uh, going into the going into the closing. Um, I thought Cam, I actually thought Cam might have had an edge going into, into the closing. He had some really good points about how like like I, I was kind of sold on how like Axel Foley could possibly get these characters to change a little bit and then it thought and then he did bring up a good point about like how the crime levels between john mcclain and axel foley aren't quite aren't quite the same so there could be um some separation there but uh, i think jacoby really brought it home in, in the closing argument with like like axel foley can't just be playing like two two sides of of, of these coins or whatever um, and then also saying on brand with like this has to be michael bay action explosion that's what bad boys is all righty. Movie wasn't directed by Michael Bay, but oh, well, it was an homage to him. This, this well, is Jacob... why I don't why I don't play in melee. Jacoby got the point. We're moving on. All right. So, uh, going on next question. Get Brooklyn and Kirk out of here. Damn it, they don't need to be here anymore. Go to the next question, which is uh, uh is a it's a melee category drafted by. Cameron, which is in the uh, franchise of Chronicles of Narnia, and his question is, what non-fandom sci-fi fantasy character would fit the best in a Narnia franchise? Cameron, this is your category. So you're going to get one minute to open, open this. Give me one second. Someone's knocking at my... Okay. Well, this seems like a problem for Tim later. Or Cody, whoever edits this. I'm back. Okay. Was my mother. Gotcha. Like I said, one minute opening argument. We need to start talking. So I think at the core of its series, Narnia as a whole is a story about childlike wonder, about finding who you are in this fantasy world and accepting the responsibility of growing up through these uh, adverse circumstances in this fantasy realm. And so the character that I chose that I think would fit the best into this franchise is Alexander Elliot from The Kid Who Would Be King. Alexander in The Kid Who Would Be King proves that he is capable of going through these experiences. He proves that he can accept this responsibility to lead an army to go up against this mystical, fantastical threat, just the same way that the Pevensey children do in all three Narnia films. He has shown that he has the, the moral fiber, but still has this place to grow and to learn, but also has this childlike wonder where the reason he's able to succeed is because he approaches all of the tasks ahead of him with this sense of childlike wonder, this sense of different thinking that an adult couldn't have, um, and just really is able to take his own perspective into it. I think that the core of the franchise fits exactly what the core of him as a character is. All right, we don't need to go on. Two, see, two seconds of your time. Uh, get you out of here. And Jacoby, you're up. You have one minute when you start talking. Oh. That was silly. <laughs> uh, there's a scene in the terrible Voyage of the Dawn Treader movie where the characters come, acro come across some like annoying troll monsters who live outside a boring magician's house. And I kept thinking throughout that whole sequence that I wish the trolls were Oompa Loompas, that the magician was really Wonka, and that the boring house was a magical chocolate factory instead. I think the problem with the Narnia franchise is that the actual locations that we see in this fantastical, mystical, and magical realm are pretty uneventful and not very memorable. And that's why Willy Wonka and his chocolate factory would be a 
great addition and overall the best fit to the Narnia franchise. I think Wonka adds not only a bit of like spark and creativity to this seemingly enchanted land, uh, which I think it desperately needs, but the lessons that he would teach to any kid visitor from the world um, would expand and build off of what the themes of the franchise are, which is, you know, the childlike wonder and accepting growing up, but do so in a more interesting way than we've ever seen before. So it's a unique choice um, that fills out the Narnia world better. And I think that's what would ultimately make the Narnia franchise the best. And that's why Wonka is the best fit. Hi. They just, they just fit, I believe. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But there it is. All right, guys. Uh, you, five minutes. When one of you starts talking, please don't be rowdy. So the whole core tenet of Narnia as a franchise and as a world is that it is a world of wonder and magic and that believing in it is what makes it so powerful. And Willy Wonka, as we see in the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is that frankly, he is a very inherently cynical character. He does not believe in the inherent good in children. He in, in, insists and assumes that these children are going to betray him at any point and is not surprised when they do. He is expecting it and is only surprised by the fact that a child can be good by putting a character so inherently cynical and inherently negative in his outlook on life towards this place in this new location it disservices both him and the location by putting them together when they don't complement each other or service each other in any way see i just i disagree with that also because i think willy wonka can fit the purpose of what every kid who travels to narnia needs like they need to be tested they need to be proven to be true of heart and there is no better example of that than willy wonka himself and his magical crazy out there fantastical chocolate factory and i think that's what makes wonka such an interesting character to fit in this world because he's someone the kids can go to uh that can learn from and can expand upon and take the lessons that they need to in order to become their leaders you picked alex which is great. But as you said, like in your opening, like he can fill the role that the Pensieve children also did. And that's the problem. Like he is very much like the Pensieve children. He is like one step below Peter and Susan and a little bit above Lucy and Edmund. So it's like, we're if you, if you put Alex in it, we're going to get the same thing again. And I just don't think that's interesting after three movies of it, not being interesting that I think we need to do something else. And I think that starts with adding more creative, more out there people like Willy Wonka. See, but the problem is, I think you're undercutting the fact that Alexander Elliot, as a person who has established himself to be a strong leading character from a narrative standpoint and a strong leader from a from a character standpoint and not just a narrative standpoint, is able to carry this franchise. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the things that makes it not as good as the first two is you lose the Peter, you lose the Susan, and now you're stuck with Eustace instead. They need a new character to take that lead, to guide them through this world. You need a new strong lead to bring them through this realm. As well, you said earlier that there's no memorable locations and you could have this memorable location with the magical chocolate factory the beautiful castle of care Paravel, the terrifying witch's castle the sprawling lantern wastes where mr tumnus's house is the living river that is capable of attacking people um aslan's how with a stone table you have all of these beautiful visually stunning and different locations that all serve their own unique purpose. And there's no real purpose for a chocolate factory in a world where we've also been shown that candy is inherently evil from the first movie. But doesn't that just make such an interesting story? Because Candy is so rooted in this narrative, in this world itself, where Turkish delights allowed a kid to betray his whole family because they were so delicious. Doesn't that mean that Wonka is perfect for this world? Doesn't that mean that there should be a Wonka in this world? That there should be someone, some candy maker, who's making these delicious treats that are causing people to betray everything around them? And that's great because, as you said in your thing, which is like, yeah, Susan and Peter are gone and we're stuck with them, so we just want Peter and we just want a, uh, a Susan... Or 
I just get all the names mixed up because they're all the same. Alex is just another Susan, a Peter, and yeah, Peter's the older one. They're all the same cut of the same cloth, and they're going to go through the same journey, and we're going to get through the same things. Wonka fits in all, and his chocolate factory, his mystical, wild, crazy out there fits with all those crazy locations that you said, but does so in something different ways and gives us something more interesting than the less boring places in Narnia. See, but the thing is, these these locations aren't out there and crazy. They're these very grounded, real fantasy locations based in real history. The entire point of the Narnia world is that it spawns from an artifact originally found in an older version of the real human world and has built itself the way that it functionally society built itself. And you're throwing it way too far forwards into the future with the way you've proposed to in, in, include it. As well, Alexander Elliot is not just a stand-in for Peter, a stand-in for Susan. All of these characters have their unique traits. You have have High King Peter the Magnificent, the brave, noble leader, but who knows that he's going to have to fail sometimes. You have Susan, the wise and gentle one, but also knows when she has to step up. You have Lucy, the wide-eyed sense of wonder, who's brave, whose kindness and, gen and just love for this world are able to save it. And you have Edmund, who, as much as he's flawed, learns through this entire thing what to become. Alexander has this new different arc of being this young person, being this person who has always been told that he is lesser than, getting into this place and being able to take that mantle. See, but you're you're listing all these characters of like why he can follow in the footsteps of the characters he came before. But Cam, the, the, there was one good movie and two really bad movies. And you're proposing a thing that's going to bring it back to just a mediocre okay and just an okay movie. So the fact that we have to bring in someone else in order to uplift this Narnia franchise, I'm trying to fit with trying to make this a better movie and a better franchise and having a mystical place that, that these kids can go to and can learn from is going to be so much better than just inserting another stand-in for the other six characters who have already been in Narnia. Well, you've already been in Narnia. Gosh, very good. All right. God, this one's going to be tough. All right. Uh, Jacoby, you got one minute to close when you start talking. We've seen three movies about British kids who go to Narnia and learn to be leaders or help save the realm from dark forces, and they're not all good movies. Cam is adding another kid in the mix who would serve the exact same function, but in a less interesting way. Alex is almost already, I think, fully formed as a leader, as, as Cam always saying, all his great qualities about him, and he has too much in common with just the characters we've seen before. Wonka opens up something new, opens up Narnia's realm in new ways. I would argue that Wonka's factory fits better in Narnia than it does in in the real world it is a magical place it is a mystical place it can't we can fit it into the narnia world just fine us uh, and then narnia has like this it's established that narnia has these sweets and this candy along with this magic so let's trace it back to the source and kind of have wonka be narnia's candy supplier he would be a location that the main kids would travel to and it would fit within any journey the characters go on normally in a in a narnia movie wonka himself kind of is a kid at heart which would compare nicely to i think the main character kids who are adults at heart. I mean, the contrast is different, Time. and the location is the best. Okay. I think everything after different. Got to gotta <laughs> leave it. All right. Cameron. It's a good one. One minute. The problem with what you're arguing is you're arguing a fundamental change to the Narnia series. And the question is not who could fundamentally change for the better or for the worse, but who would fit best. And Alexander Elliott has proven through his character arc, through his traits, and through his position as a person, why he fits well into that world. Uh, Willy Wonka has shown through his own actions that going into a fant fantastical world like Narnia, or for instance, the land of the Oompa Loompas, is something that he does to exploit for his own profit by kidnapping and taking the people who work and live there and exploiting them for his own personal gains. As well, you're saying, let's just watch the Pevensies or the characters 
Pirates from Narnia go through the Chocolate Factory. If I wanted to watch a bunch of kids go through Charlie's Chocolate Factory, I'd watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And if I wanted to watch the characters from Narnia go through Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, I'd watch an epic movie. You are pitching something that exists in the worst, lowest form already. Instead of giving me something where he fits, he enhances the narrative, he is able to take his place rightfully amongst these people, become a leader, show us what the potential of a child can be when thrown into these adverse circumstances, and show us why these movies are the childlike wonder and joy that we need. All right, we're done. Holy shit. This is a really good one, guys. I mean... Oh boy, 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 boy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just, just writing it up. Man. Okay, uh, looks like uh, we're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I think we're. I think we go to Kirk. Uh, no, Brooklyn went last, so he goes first this time. You're right, Brooklyn. Start us off. First of all, there will be no slander of epic movie, superhero movie, uh, any <laughs> of the scary be. movies. Uh, they are gold in this household. Uh, second of all, I went, went with Cam. Um, this was fucking close, uh, but I think I think Cam really took it home in the closing, um, where he was able to kind of balance where. Willy, Willy Wonka's world, I think, is just too complex and you need too much exposition um, and it lacks kind of the symbolism and the brand that ultimately, ultimately Narnia is. I think it really came down to like the character of Alex versus the kind of the setting of, of, of Willy Wonka. I think that was kind of an interesting riff for this. I didn't expect it to go that way. Uh, yeah. Um, I got to tell you guys, uh, whenever like, you know, we kind of pose these questions, you know, I feel like at least me, like I think, oh, how, how good is it going to be? I did not particularly high hopes for this question, but holy shit, this is probably one of the best questions I think I, I've been on call for. It was really, it was really close. But um, I did also go with Cameron. Uh, uh, Jacoby, you really argued your ass off and made a really good case for Willy Wonka being in this. But I think kind of similarly why I went with you before. I kind of went with Cam here because I feel like at the end of the day, I think he, I think he answered the question the best in that Alex from the kid who would be King, I think fits his world best. I think he adds an interesting foil. And he also kind of, I think he, he also brings like an interesting mix of like um, coming after like the Pensieve kids and probably he's like a good, he's a good character to kind of carry on the franchise if need be. Um, and with that, uh, Kirk, your vote does not matter here, but yeah. where did you go? I actually went with Jacoby. Um, I think that um, a vote for Justin Bieber, but (laughs) (laughs) they—they—I think it was close. They both, and I think they both had strong closings. But I think for me, um, it was a matter of who. Sometimes it's just the movie you want to see, and I think Jacoby really pitched the idea of how uh, Willy Wonka fits in this world and what he would do. And even in his closing, Cam was saying about how like Willy Wonka like exploits exploits these other worlds. I'm like, well, I'd like be interested to see him do that do that too. And I think just that. Um, Cameron was arguing that Alexander is so much different than the other Pensieve kids. And as a casual 
I mean, I'll even use that word lightly, casual fan of these movies. Um, I really didn't see the difference. I'm sure that it's there if you, if you really know it, but just within the argument, I really wasn't hearing enough to hear how he's different from those other characters. Is this where I can point out that every person here has pronounced Pevensey wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Cameron. I so think everybody here has seen it's these movies once. <laughs> but whatever. Cameron gets that point. We're all tied up one to one. Let's just get judges out of here. Which uh, brings us third question, which uh, this question was drafted by uh, Jacoby. And uh, this question is directors, Park Chan-wook, and the question simply is, what non-fandom franchise should Park Chan-wook direct a film in? And uh, since this is Jacoby's question, he'll open it up for us. You have one minute when you start talking. Uh, Park Chan-wook is an incredibly gifted director who excels at making these bloody, brutal tales of vengeance filled with characters with questionable morals, and that's one of the reasons why he should direct a film in the Saw franchise. The studio seems adamant about continuing to make Saw movies, so how about for the first time in like 20 years, we actually get a talented director to make one of these films? The themes at play at in the Saw franchise are right in Wook's wheelhouse, but it's clear that he has a better, better handle on it than any of the low-budget crap than we continue to get. Almost every one of Wook's films feels like you could pull inspiration from and form an actually competent Saw film. And the best thing is that thanks to the idea of the awful Spiral spinoff movie, Wook basically has a free reign to craft whatever spinoff story he wants in the Saw universe. And it's important to give this director in particular a big sandbox to play in in order to do what he does best. So um, so his style and his the way that he builds his characters and everything about him um, as a director make him a perfect fit for for a Saw movie. Time. All right. Thank you, Jacoby. I'm going to go on to Cameron. You have one minute. You start talking. Park Chan-wook has shown that he is at his best when he gets to do a slow-paced, interesting, thrilling drama with things like Old Boy, where you have as much as you have these big action scenes. It is a very slow burn drama that leads to this big reveal. You have The Handmaiden, this erotic thriller type movie where the dramatic stakes and the interactions between our characters are what make his filmmaking great. Decision to Leave, this procedural that gives us this really, really interesting mystery with this very great dynamic between all of our main characters. And no franchise, no non-fandom franchise does that better than the Hannibal Lecter series. By giving Park Chan-wook the sandbox to play with this notorious serial killer, this genius who is fed by these one-on-one interactions with people, as we see in movies like Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs, where just through conversation, he can assess everything about you and plan his next move. He could create this tense, dramatic, and slow burn thriller that gives you everything you could want from both a Hannibal Lecter movie and a Park Chan-wook film. All right. Good picks. Guys, you're up here now. All right. Uh, One minute. Five minute free form. I was going to say one minute, five minute. And somebody starts talking. I think you made a mistake picking a Hannibal Lecter film because I think now you're beholden to the Hannibal Lecter mythology and the franchise. I'm not sure where you go with the story because you either have Wook remake one of the Hannibal films and that's boxing Wook in and brings up the question of, you know, why does not make an original movie? Or you have to make a new film with the Hannibal character, Lecter character, and I don't know how you do that. Or you do a prequel and I don't know how that works either. I do think his style fits Hannibal's themes, but I think the Saw franchise both fits his themes in a way where he can expand on it and make it better. The Hannibal Lecter series 
series is already kind of done. The Saw franchise, they're still pumping them out. And I agree with you that, that he is great at slow-paced drama and dramatic stakes. That's what the Saw franchise needs in order to boost it to the next level. On top of Wook's love for blood and gore and disgust and, and shock and everything, which is why he's a better fit for the Saw movie. First of all, to target the blood and gore and disgust, the main character of the Hannibal Lecter film is literally a cannibal. You have the room for that blood, that gore, that disgust, the the wearing people's skin like Buffalo Bill does in Silence of the Lambs, all of these torturous scenes, these disturbing things. You have the ability to give Wook the chance to work with those things while still doing it in his own self-contained way. The problem with the Saw franchise is that it's a franchise that has built its reputation and built, built its entire fandom on being this gore fest, this insane spectacle of everything and not really caring about the story. Spiral, a film that tried to go back to the more story-based elements of the original ones, was critically and commercially panned and a failure. Putting Wook on that goes against the tenet that has made people love it and wastes his talents on a franchise that is dying in the water instead of putting him on a franchise that has love, prestige, and something he can do with it. But it's a franchise that you can't go anywhere with it because you're boxing him in into making an already Hannibal Lecter and working with those characters. Saw franchise allows him to do anything that he wants to do with it and do so in his unique way. The Saw movies are about just like brutal traps, which he can do, despicable characters, which he can do. And it's also, as you said, like the story, it's like the weak part of the Saw movies. The, the Saw franchise is built on great movie twists. Every Saw movie has a twist and like half of them are just okay. But that's another reason why Wook should direct a Saw film because he's actually great at these shocking twists in his movies, like the movies that you mentioned, Old Boy and Handmaiden. He is great at these twists, so he can bring his sense and sensibilities and styling to the Saw franchise and make it better and increase it, where Hannibal Lecter, it's like, yeah, he can make a Hannibal Lecter story and that's probably pretty good. Is it going to be as good as Silence of the Lambs? That's probably going to be debatable, but why would you want to do that where you can actually have him make a better franchise if they keep making movies of? See, but the problem is you can't tell me that I'm putting him in a box with Hannibal Lecter when you're forcing him to make functionally new Jigsaw. As much as Spiral is technically a different guy, it's still a same person emulating Jigsaw, doing the Jigsaw thing over and over. We have these traps. We have this tried and tested formula that is constantly declining, constantly getting worse. And the fact of the matter is the twist that you keep saying just constantly convoluted the plotline. I have seen every Saw movie up to this point and the franchise lost its storyline years ago after like two movies. You can't just sit here and go Park Chan-wook coming back is going to fix the mistakes of all of the previous ones. You cannot tell me that Hannibal, that a Park Chan-wook Hannibal Lecter movie has to just readapt one of the old stories or get stuck in that sandbox. Hannibal as a TV show was revived and did brand new stories, brand new tales, and people loved it. Park Chan-wook has the opportunity to revive a South Korean thriller version of the Hannibal Lecter story, sticking true to that mythos, sticking true to who he is as a character, and adapting it to this new place, these new situations, and making it his own, making it great, and true playing to his strengths so it's a south korean version of the same hannibal lecter characters you're just remaking the things and having the same version of the characters well i no what i am what i am progressing it's because it's a the saw world is about jigsaw's effect on the world around him it can create anybody around him to create these put these characters in these traps and be pushed and be pushed to the limits you're making all my points for me which i great which i love is the fact that the saw franchise is horrible it does have bad twists and it's and it has lost its way so that's why it needs to be given to a very talented director one of the best working today the ones who 
have a handle on blood and gore, the one who have a handle on despicable characters who you can't help root for, which is always one of the weakest parts of the Saw movies, and he can make them interesting. And he can nail the twist ending of the Saw franchise. All those key elements to what, what could make a Saw franchise great, a movie great, is what he can do. Hannibal Lecter, yes, you're just going to remake and have another South Korean version of Hannibal Lecter's story, but why do that? Why would you have him do that? Let's have him get out in the world and create a world for himself that he can do whatever he wants in under the guise of just in, in Jigsaw's world, and you can do that. Okay, Hannibal Lecter can be given different stories. You can't just keep saying we're going to do the same thing over and over again and say the character is stuck in the same place. No, he is not. There are so many ways you can take this character. So many investigations, so many crimes, so many different things. You do not get to claim that your character is doing something new and then take that away from me because my character is absolutely getting that opportunity. He has the opportunity to do these new mysteries, to interact with these people, to build these tense relationships, which is not what the Saw franchise is about and wasting Wook on that franchise. Time. Another really good one. Uh, okay, uh, Cameron, you get one minute to close this one out. Or you're in. The biggest problem with putting Wook in the Saw franchise is you are both wasting him as a director on a franchise that frankly does not use his potential well, and also alienating the audience who has grown to love the gore, the extravagance, and the insanity of these films, and kind of moved past the story by this point as we're 10 movies in. The Hannibal Lecter franchise is something that has had its time off, has had a break, and now has the opportunity to come back for this revival, for this revolution, for this brand new twist, turn, take. We saw in Decision to Leave last year that Wook can weave a tense tense procedural thriller we saw in old boy that he can do this gore this disgustingness but still have this heart to it we saw in the handmaiden that he can do these twists and turns and all of these things service the hannibal lecter series far more than they service saw saw at this point is a glorified gore fest that cannot be saved give wook something that has had its time off but still has its stern defenders its stern lovers and let him run wild do his own thing and make it great in his own individual personal way where he will not be wasted and can use his talents. Time. Okay, man. This one's going to be tough too. All right, Jacoby. You got one minute to close this one out. Let's go. Yes, as Cam said a lot, the Saw movies are mostly all terrible, but yet we still continue to make them. We've tried all these spinoffs, we've tried prequels, we've tried new sequels, but one thing we haven't tried is giving the franchise over to an actually talented writer and director to do whatever he wants in and follow the themes that are set before. Park Chan-wook has a very unique style to him that I think makes him one of the most gifted directors I think working today. He also loves these stories of brutal vengeance and blood that would give Saw franchise a new edge. It, it, it highlights all the blood and the gore that the Saw franchise loves, but does so in a so much better way he's also great at making despicable characters likable and can pull off a great twist and the twist is probably the most important part of a saw film and we know that's something that he can do well wook directing a hannibal lecter film is too narrow for the franchise for him as he's going to be hindered by by story by past comparisons to other film and also a deep mythology that that he says the saw franchise has hannibal has just as deep a mythology i want wook to have free wet reign to make the story that he wants to tell with original characters and not just have a hannibal lecter knockoff of somebody else that he can do before new characters new Woo, new saw franchise okay uh billy new saw like somewhere in there you know striking from the record <laughs> really committed to that <laughs> there's something there's something <laughs> the last five or six words are coming 
Wait, uh, all right, yeah, there we go. Uh, let me get to do this because I got okay. Well, just have to write down my thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you guys are bringing it today. It's a really good one. Um, okay. Alright. Yeah, it looks like you guys are ready. Uh yeah. I'm pretty sure this time we're starting with Kirk. Uh, am yeah. I right in Alrighty. Yep. Okay. Um I went with Cam on this one. Um I think that um Jacoby was leaning hard into blood and twists, and Cam did a good job of pointing out that his franchise would also have that, plus everything else that uh, Wook is good at that uh, the saw does not include, like, characters and relationships, things like that. And, um, you know, Jacoby was, you know, pushing hard the fact that you'd be locked in with, uh, with Lecter, um, but uh, Cameron came back and said, hey, they did a whole TV show about him with new stories and new, new things going on. So I think uh, Cameron did a really good job of shooting down Jacoby's arguments on that one. All right. Brooklyn, do you got um, I I disagree with Kirk actually. I went with Jacoby, and I thought this could have been scored almost as like a ten eight round uh, for the UFC fans that are that are watching. Um, yeah, I thought he did a really good job of just kind of going bit by bit why Park Chan Wook is better for Saw as opposed to Hannibal Lecter. How the characters fit 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 to his style. Um, how it saw is this more of a blank canvas as opposed to Hannibal, where there's these almost these kind of rules with the franchise, and that you have to kind of obey the to them, and it doesn't really fit fit to his style. Uh, so that's where I ended up going. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. This one was pretty tough. I, I, this one's really close. Um, never bit off. I did go with Jacoby. So, um, um. I think at the end of the day, for me, it just kind of came down to what 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 I found most interesting, and I think where Jacoby really sold me, at least on like giving the Saw franchise what I think has mostly been like mostly been like a garbage franchise, and we give it to somebody like who has a unique vision and could bring like some interesting new life into this franchise, especially when it's been going on for a while i think I, I think ultimately that that's just kind of what did it for me uh so with that 2-1 jacoby gets that point and uh we're gonna go into the last question which cameron does need to hit yep. for a second okay all right but yeah jacoby got that point and uh we're gonna go on to the last question which uh cameron does need to hit to uh stay alive go into that uh bonus question all right and we're going to the last category which is fandom, which is something Cam drafted, which it simply is oh, How to Train a Dragon. Best moment in the How to Train a Dragon trilogy. All right, Cameron, this is your category. You get one minute to open this one up. Oh, wait, no. What am I doing? I'm so dumb. That would be Jacoby Baker. <laughs> yep, I'm just a dumb idiot. All right, one minute when you start talking, Cameron. Thank <laughs> you. 
the core tenet of the How to Train Your Dragon franchise is the relationship between Toothless and Hiccup and how that relationship is able to change not just the minds of Hiccup and of Toothless, but the minds of everyone around them. And I think that impetus and that central idea is no better represented by the than by the romantic flight scene in the first How to Train Your Dragon. For those who don't know, this is the scene where uh, Hiccup and Toothless take Astrid on a flight at the beginning. And at first, she's very resistant to it, very unhappy with it, but gradually comes to realize that what Hiccup and Toothless are able to accomplish together is this beautiful harmony between their two worlds that can create this change, that can create this amazing experience that everyone is so close-minded to. Um, the animation in this scene is absolutely beautiful. It uses cinematography advised on by Roger Deakins for the animation and creates these beautiful sweeping long takes, these fantastic visuals, and these stunning environments that all add to the narrative impact of this scene. Um, it sets the foundation for Hiccup and Toothless's abilities moving forwards in the series. Oh, excuse me, time. Okay, alrighty. Oh, God, I hate my keyboard. All right, good job, Cameron. All right, Jacoby, you got one minute when you start talking. The best moment in the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy is when Stoic reunites with Valka. It is the crux of at least the first two movies. It's kind of like the perfect center of events. It's both incredibly emotional because we've seen Stoic grow so much since the first movie. And his moment of pure love when he sees his wife again is heart melting and a perfect cap to his character arc. But also this moment right here is what makes Stoic's death that much more tragic because he was right on the verge of being re reunited with his whole family after all these years. So it both works as this beautiful beautiful, tender, loving moment of pure character growth, but also one that's tinged with tragedy because of what comes later. Yes, this franchise is, of course, about Hiccup and Toothless, but what has made this franchise into one of the most consistent and best animated trilogies is the care that it treats its side characters. And this is close to a perfect encapsulation of why Stoic was the MVP of this franchise and where this series got a huge boost of heart by showing what the effect that Hiccup and Toothless had on Stoic applied in real life to this character um and and it was a beautiful moment all righty very good one all right so last of the planned uh questions so guys you get five minutes when he starts talking make it count so I think the problem with the reunion between Stoic and Valka is that it is a scene that really only works because of that singular line, the you're as beautiful as the day I lost you, as fantastic as that line is, no one really cares about or remembers the moments leading directly into it and the moments right after the actual reunion where the two of them have their first conversations. People are much more interested in that dynamic, in the reconnection between them, when we see the later on scene of For the Dancing and the Dreaming, when we actually get to see them reuniting and being a couple again, and not just this one-sided moment of him saying that he lost her and her having, frankly, an unmemorable response to it that no one cares. See, it's funny that you say it's like no one remembers my scene where I I didn't remember your scene at all. It's Hiccup flying with Astrid in the first movie and, and Hiccup and Astrid is like the sixth most important relationship in the How to Train Your Dragon franchise. Everyone knows that the How to Train Your Dragon franchise is basically about Hiccup and Toothless and Hiccup and Stoic. And this moment is the perfect Stoic moment because it applies everything that Stoic has learned about being nice into this great moment where the, with this lead up where you don't know what's going to happen and to this heart melting moment and then adds on and adds dramatic heft to the scene after Afterwards, whereas your scene is like, oh yeah, Astrid has changed, and that's kind of nice. But that doesn't—that's an—it's a forgettable moment in this overall trilogy. 
See, but you're undercutting this moment as being forgettable when it's really not. It has this beautiful sweeping score piece. It is the first time someone other than Hiccup interacts with a dragon. You have these great, great scenes, these great moments of them going through these arches, touching against the water, and then it leads up to them finally discovering the Red Death, this great big creature. But the biggest thing with it is that it sets the foundation for the change and the entire point of this series. You can say Hiccup and Toothless is the most important relationship, and the reason why is because their relationship is capable of changing an, enti an entire society of people who are closed off and closed-minded. And Astrid, the chief dragon hunter of this young new generation, being the first they can change means so much. See, you you say that, oh, it's it's so memorable because it has a sweeping score and it's about them flying. This franchise is about Hiccup and Toothless flying through the air. Beautifully animated moments through the air and soaring and flying. A adding Astrid to the moment does not change anything. Everything that you have said more applies better to my scene that you're like, oh, Astrid changes because she is the chief Viking hunter. Stoic is the chief of the whole village and he hates dragons. He is the reason why the village hates dragons to begin with because he's so angry about them for his wife. And to see the resolution of that, which is after Hiccup and Toothless change his mind and show him how to be uh, like understanding and heartfelt. We see that in action as he forgives his wife and doesn't have any anger in his heart whatsoever. As opposed to Astrid, where that moment is just set up for her being changed later, and that it's not a as important of a moment as uh, Stoic. See, but the thing is, it is that important. The problem with the Stoic and Valka reuniting scene is Valka is really disserviced as a character. She is there as simply an object, a thing that Stoic lost. Her part played in this reunion between the two of them is completely left behind for Stoic. As much as Stoic is the character that we had introduced in the first film, and he's the longer standing character, if this scene is supposed to be about the two of them, their relationship finally coming back together, and the two of them being reunited, we should see more of both of them interact with each other there is a better scene in your own movie that does that better and accomplishes that better and undercuts the abilities of the scene not to mention that it has dreary low lighting not that great of visuals just a dark dimly lit cave you see Astrid and Hiccup flying through these clouds, flying across the ocean, going from the daytime to the nighttime, having this growth even shown just through their facial expressions. There's so much more. Yeah, but that you're picking a flying franchise in a franchise about flying where mine is a direct character moment. And the fact that you're saying that Valka doesn't play a part in this is undercutting what Valka is doing in the scene. She is also afraid and scared of what Stoic's reaction is going to be after leaving for like 20 years. And the fact while Stoic's approaching her and cutting her down like, I had to do this. It was this. You were a changed man. You were afraid. And both of them melting at Stoic's line is perfect for this moment and is what makes this moment so beautiful and so tender and so lovely. It doesn't matter. There's dim lighting for it because it's rooted in the character that we've grown to love and it also sets up more of the movie later on that makes Stoic's death the, the pivot point of the, the franchise itself that much more dramatic because it yours is just again another scene you say like oh it might happens another later scene you have Hiccup flying with Toothless Hiccup flies with everyone Hiccup flying with his mom in my movie is a better representation of what your scene is trying to convey than mine is so I don't know what you're talking about these flying scenes uh Stoic is my scene's better so the thing is, the flying scene in How to Train Your Dragon 2 is not about changing the hearts and minds of people. It's not about setting up that relationship, setting up that foundation. It's about him finally meeting someone who thinks the same as him from the jump. Him flying with Astrid shows the potential for change, shows the potential that him and Toothless have as a pair, as this, as you said, most important pair in this series. Valka is left behind further in the series, disrespected by the franchise itself. And this moment, as much as you say it enhances the later films, it is left for nothing by the time of the third movie, whereas the relationship is there the whole time. time. Alrighty. That's another good one.
Okay. Oh, God. I'm getting mixed up. All right, Jacoby. Are you right here? Oh, wait. No, no, no. Jacoby's in. Good. You're Lord. just not going to remember. <laughs> not. Sorry. Jacoby, one minute. This franchise is filled with a lot of really great, really heartfelt moments, but my moment is the best moment for a few big reasons. Let's kind of pretend for a second that both of our scenes were removed from the movie. Which moment do we miss the most? Astrid flying with Hiccup and learning that dragons aren't bad is nice, and I would argue the first movie, though, is just as effective without that scene, as it's more focused on Hiccup's relationship with Toothless and with Stoic. But if you take out my scene, you take out the franchise's MVP's most important scene that pays off all the character development that he's go through. Cam says it's like, yes, this is the moment where that shows that people can change in in this franchise his moment uh, can show that people can change my moment is that moment in action because we actually see it applied with somebody other than that than hiccup and tooth it's stoic with his wife the most haunted relationship of his life because he was so angry to see him approach his wife like that is such a lovely um tender emotional scene that both uh sticks uh the landing to a great character arc and it sets up the franchise that stoic's death is so much more sadder because of this moment here and that moment moment only works because of uh stoics re uh, reuniting with alka yeah yeah reuniting with alka i believe striking it all right oh boy all right jacoby gone bring in cameron he's gonna close this one out for us get it done your moment does not change stoic Stoic had already changed. That's what the entire first movie is about. The entire first movie is about Hiccup changing the minds and hearts of people, including his father, the fiercest dragon fighter of them all, through his relationship with Toothless. And without him teaming up with Astrid, showing her the way and learning that he can change anyone, the rest of this franchise doesn't happen. Stoic doesn't change. In fact, Stoic dies in that final fight falling to his ways. This emotional moment that you say you have is one-sided. It is undercut. It is left behind by the third film. The plot narrative, the importance, the absolute power set in motion by Toothless and Hiccup's relationship is shown to us for the very first time when he goes out on a limb and he takes Astrid for a ride and he shows her in this kind, tender moment with just the two of them on this adventure with Toothless, that he can change, she can change, the dragons can change, everyone can change, and that's what it's about. All right. That's what it's about. I say that's what it's about. Okay. All right. Let's bring in everybody back in. Okay. Man. No, this is it's always a part I think is probably whether misses like when Tim's not here. It's really like Tim usually can feel like dead air. Usually like whenever we're just kind of trying to figure out uh, who we're gonna go with, and like you know I I, I just sit here. I, I would make of... comments, but they might <laughs> undercut guys, like, voting. <laughs> yeah, it's like I never want to say anything first. Like I want to make jokes right away, and then I'm like, like I, should, I just yeah, I, but just, I, just, I, stop, I don't even look anymore. I just got like. Is everyone right now? <laughs> yeah. Is uh, it already, okay, cool, Jacoby. You picked one of my ten favorite scenes ever made for a film. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, it, if you couldn't tell, everything I said was bullshit. <laughs> oh, I couldn't tell. <laughs> uh, okay. Is it? Is it? I know I'm going to Kirk a lot of this one because I just generally don't know. You, you went last. You went last last time, right? You were. Yeah. 
Yeah, so yeah, you go first this time. Okay, cool. I'll get a hang of it at least and figure out who That's goes right. first or not. You're good. Uh, yeah, good job. Okay. Um, yeah, just go it. I, I end up going with Cameron. Uh, be honest, kind of what did it with me was mostly uh, what he said in his closing and kind of, I think, kind of were. This is more or less, this is kind of the, the whole, like, this is kind of, you know, how the whole franchise was kind of born. It's kind of where it came off. And, like, this is kind of the thing that started it all. And ultimately, like, this is, this is what, what the franchise is. It's Hiccup and Toothless, and it's their relationship. And it's, it, it, it's, it's the thing that I think kind of makes out Training Dragonwood is that's more or less where I went with. All right. Uh, Kirk. Yeah, this was I was leading one way uh, through most of the match, but it got a lot closer in the closing remarks because some really good things got brought up. Um, but ultimately, also I also went with Cam. Um, I think that uh, I, I mean, what really did for me. Jacoby had a great closing argument, um, but I think Cam came back and did really. What I liked was uh, when he said that basically uh, your moment stems from my moment. Um, and I think that was just a really good, uh, uh, wrap up. And I, I think, you know, he, he gave both a lot of, uh, details about the scene itself and also how it built to the narrative of the story and its importance. It's just one of those situations where you have somebody who just has the, the knowledge and the passion of the subject matter. And that's sometimes really hard to overcome. All righty. Well, uh, Berglin, uh, it doesn't matter, but where'd you go? Uh, we were talking about how Tim does a really good job of filling in time, but also coming up with alternate names for people. Uh, I went with Cam and Cheese Sandwich. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought that he did a really good – he just had a good knowledge of, of the subject matter. And I think when you're going in arguing basically like the moral backbone of the of, of the trilogy, I think you have that's, – that's just a really good answer selection. And I think that's an aspect that, that can be often overlooked in these matches. I maybe could have gotten a better nickname if I didn't slander epic movie, apparently. <laughs> Fair enough. Well then, ties it up. 2-2. Two, two, which means uh, we will go into our speed round question. Uh, which uh, spun before. Oh, we ended up going with fandom. Ended up getting fandom here. And what you spun on was Marvel slash MCU. And your question, finish this one off. How does this, so wait, so how does this going to work? Again, sorry. So we just had first one who answers, we just go, right? Like, yeah. Okay, sorry. First one answers is you're going first. Yeah. yeah. First one to answer. And we could answer. So you wouldn't just answer. say, Black Panther. Hi, I'm Jacoby Bancroft. This is yeah. the, the Black Panther argument. <laughs> the argument without no gotcha. I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. So, like I said, it's Marvel, Marvel, MC, Marvel MCU. You maybe kind of saw it. What Marvel mutant would ha- would make the best solo film in the MCU? All right. Here's what you gotta do: Google whatever. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. There's so many. There's a lot of mutants. I think. Yeah, I'm gonna go with. Oh, I just can't put an answer really quick. Okay, I'm gonna go with. Yeah, this will work, right? Solo film. Cyclops. I'm gonna go with Cyclops. Alright. Cyclops. Yeah, screw it. Um Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, alright. Uh, 
I'm sure I did that. I'm sure Tim's gonna love this. Okay. That's fine, Tim. Out here. Okay. Alrighty. All right, Jacoby, answer first. 45 seconds. Open this one up and you start talking. Wait, don't you have to, didn't you have to say our answer? I, I missed the part. I was. No, no. Okay, there's no cut to when we said the thing. Oh, gotcha. I should have said it in a fun way, I guess, but okay. All right. Guess so. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I'd be alone on the screen. Don't count this as my time. Sorry. Wait. Okay. Thought it'd be alone. Okay. Uh, Cyclops is one of the best mutant characters, and he has been drastically underused in every X-Men film before him. This is where the MCU can really shine, because we can have a solo film dedicated to Scott's absolutely insane backstory that develops him into the leader. Because the thing with the MCU is that they aren't solo films. They are solo films that lead to team-up movies, and now with the solo movie of Cyclops uh, developed into uh, his own interesting character, you can transition him into being the full-time leader of the team in the future movies. So both his story works as an individual in terms of a solo movie because he is one of the best leaders, one of the best fighters, one of the best tacticians, one of the best overall general mutant characters in the franchise. And then you can set him up for great things in the MCU itself um, in a way that the other previous franchise has absolutely failed him. Cyclops deserves more of a spotlight and Cyclops Time. rules. All right. Yeah, you're a Cyclops rules. Alrighty. I said Cyclops. Okay. Or rules. Yeah, I get out. <laughs> Cameron, 45 seconds. The MCU has shown that it's able to do some of its best and most competent work when it goes into subjects that are a little bit darker and a little bit more nefarious. And that's why I think Nightcrawler is a perfect subject for an MCU solo film. Starting off, he has very interesting and visually dynamic powers that can make for some great action sequences that the MCU is known for. You can have these bamps all around the screen where you can see that action come to life. You can have these things where he can do a different kind of story, where he's not just a hero meant to save everyone. It's a smaller, more contained thing where he's doing his own thing. He's working on his own as he's on the run before he meets the X-Men. He has this tragic backstory that we're not going to just make this an origin story of how he came to be, who he came to be, but we're going to see him as someone learning his way in the world, becoming who he is, and not just being already a member of the X-Men, but also not being the very foundation beginnings of this character. Somewhere in the middle ground is what we want to see. Time. Okay. Alrighty. Back over Jacoby. Get 30 seconds. Here's what out. Uh, yes, I agree that Nightcrawler is a tragic and dark and darker nefarious character with a very brutal and, and mischievous backstory. But the thing is that the MCU is going to ruin that. This is the MCU we're talking about. That we're going to get a watered down version of this character and he's not going to live up to the full potential that he deserves. The fact is with Cyclops is that he is the, he is the leader of the X-Men. He is the leader of men. He is a leader of the MCU itself. And he has such an interesting backstory that can be explored and, and reach the full potential within the confines of the MCU and have greater things later on all right time there it is all right cameron 30 seconds the mcu can handle darker things infinity war ended with half the universe being turned to dust multiverse of madness had body horror images that people really really loved and praised as being one of the best parts of the movie the problem with your pitch of cyclops movie is that he's not a very dynamic character when it comes to being able to act him because his eyes have to be covered the whole time he only becomes a leader because of the mentorship of charles which in a solo movie you don't want that i'm over with origin stories in the mcu for characters we've already seen it's why spider-man homecoming is great because it skips all of that cyclops has nebulous boring powers Nightcrawler, dynamic character and power-wise. Oh, boy. Oh, well, that's time. Oh, my gosh. Let's bring everybody in. 
Okay. All right, Brooklyn. Where are we going? Right. Um, I think both of you picked the wrong answer, but I'll talk about it. <laughs> talk about what I would have went afterwards. Um, I think you know, not not that I think I know. Cam gets my point. Um, I think his I think his defense on the end was was it was it was really good. Um, I thought there was a good balance of um, him showing showing why his power why his powers would work. And then when Jacoby kind of brought up the incidents of oh well MCU can't handle dark things and like oh well they just did Infinity War and Multiverse Madness and whatnot. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think he did a good job. Uh, yeah. Um... Like I mean, this speed round was just kind of a good, a good go. Kind of what we got here today, just two heavies, just kind of really going at it. And uh, yeah, this last question though, definitely really close. I think Cam got the edge on this one. Give him the point. Um, I think um, listen, he just kind of sold me on kind of what a more interesting, uh, what more interesting a soul film would be of something of a character that we haven't really seen a ton of kind of what the action sequences would look like. And especially since he kind of pointed out that MCU has gone a little bit darker over the course of the years of the kind of stuff like we've seen in Infinity War and Doctor Strange. So, yeah, I think Cam just got the edge out kind of in those uh, last uh, 15, 20 seconds. Kirk? Uh, yeah, I also went with Cam. Um, I think he just sold a better movie and came on really strong those last few, last few seconds of his closing and, you know, hit with a lot of facts, you know, the power set. Uh, different story, things like that. So, um, yeah, I had to go with Cam on that. All righty. Clean sweep on that one. That's, that means, and your winner, Cameron Holzman. Holy shit, guys. This is what, geez, uh, you know, take Cam out for here for a second. Remember, talk to Jacoby. Jacoby, uh, th- this, this, was, this one was really good, especially, I think, kind of with – with uh, some some interesting questions we got here, and I mean, I, you really brought the heat on a couple of them, especially I think with a couple, at least with the Willy Wonka question, I think you kind of brought some un- unconventional picks and really argued your ass off today. But you know, ultimately, how do you think you did today? Yeah, it was a funny one that Willy Wonka. I picked Willy Wonka, and I was like, "Fuck, what is Wonka going to be doing if he's like traveling to Narnia? Like, what storyline is that going to be? That's going to be horrible." And I was writing like, "This is horrible." I'm like, "Oh wait, he's already there. Like, have him already there. Like, maybe I can do something with that." Um, but no, that was that was fun. That was that was heated. That was that was interesting. Cam's a great debater, and I had and I and I yeah, I admit he had me in that in that speed round there. He totally crushed that with his uh, um, his rebuttal there. So that was great. I mean, that was a lot of fun and. It's it's nice and I'm you know I am happy for him and I hope he continues on and gives whoever's next a a really good fight. I know uh, this uh, does uh, end your tournament run here. Uh, I'm sure we'll see you again this season for whatever it is we're doing. Uh, who do you want to face? Just that curiosity, Everybody Kirk. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, no, I don't want to do that again. Uh, I don't know. I just like facing a lot of people. I mean, they're all, uh, everyone's fun. Everyone's fun to debate. And what I like about debating different, like just someone who I haven't done before. I don't think I've ever repeated debated anybody, but uh, I like that I haven't because everyone has their own different style to it and they bring something new to the table. Like last week, Kastner was just, he was very quiet. He was very intense and he was very articulate and he goes forward like this. And this one, Cam, you can tell like throughout each question, like he kept building, right? Like he just kept bigger and bigger. And then he did, he delivered very dramatic closings which I thought was just really interesting. So uh, I like just seeing all the different styles back there. And uh, thank you all. And uh, yeah, be back next time. All righty. We'll be glad when you come back. All right. Bye, Jacoby. Bring out our winner today. 
Cameron Holzman. Uh, Cameron, uh, listen, I I feel like uh, Jacoby came on really strong here today, and I mean, the fact the fact way you brought brought on, I, I I feel like both of you put on really impressive performance, and you I think just kind of gave kind of gave the edge out with that uh, MCU question, and just went really back and forth, really impressive. But how do you think you did today? I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so exhausted right now. Um, yeah. Um, Jacoby, on on his two strength questions, like, I knew and felt like I was backed into a corner. I've never seen a film directed by Park Chan-wook. I, I don't like the Saw movies, even though I've seen all nine of them. I've only seen one Hannibal Lecter film. <laughs> um, and then... Law and Order, like, have I seen all of them? Sure. Do I like any of them? Maybe three. Uh, and it's none of the bad boys or Beverly Hills cops. Um, but yeah, like, this was one where I I know the things I know, and I know them well. How to Train Your Dragon and Narnia are two franchises that have stuck with me since I was, since I was a, a wee baby child. And by we baby child, I mean I was like five and ten when those respective franchises started. Um, and I've watched them over and over. And that was what really bailed me out in those rounds was just being able to call on these things to argue against the core tenets of my soul that know that you're as beautiful as the day I lost you is one of the greatest moments put to film, animated or otherwise. Um, and then, yeah, that speed round, like, it... It was a toss-up because there's so many options you could go with, and you could tell that neither of us wanted to pick the boring answer of Wolverine, even though it was probably the correct choice to make an easy argument for. Um, but yeah, I, Jacoby played fantastic. He proved that he knows his stuff and that he learned my stuff extremely well. Um now I get to do this again. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. Ed brought that up, which I I wonder how you feel about this. As you yeah, know who you get to play no. the winner of? You get to play the winner of Caleb Coho and Caleb Boatman. After we do the Caleb v. Caleb, which Caleb do you want to play? Caleb. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'll play the make. one whose name is spelled properly, and the people at home can decide which one I mean when I say that. Although I've, I, I will say I've played Coho before, so like playing Bowman would be more interesting, I guess. But the one named Caleb is the one I'm really rude before. If you just said the one named Caleb, it would have been a really infuriating answer. <laughs> I thought about it, but I knew that Tim would probably get mad at me. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. We'll see you next time. Cameron. Man, cut him off. This is the second time I've done that. I'm not doing that on purpose. But guys. We have one hell of a show here today. Hell of a show. Uh, I I don't really know how, how to describe it, so I'm just going to let you guys do it. And even though you're on the wrong side, Kirk, what do you think of today? Yeah, it was a great matchup. I think they both, the thing about this is they both had like the foundations of the argument really strong, and it just came down to who was able to kind of tear that down because they both, you know, even coming from different perspectives on everything, they really... Um, 
even you know whoever I disagreed with still made good points. Uh, so I think they did well. And you know, Cam said at the beginning, you know, he did very little prep. Sometimes that works. I've had matches where I didn't get to prep as much as I wanted to. Um, I came in a little distracted, worn out, and sometimes that lack of pressure uh, really works to your advantage. It really, uh, you know, frees you up to just think on the fly and uh, you know think maybe outside the box a little more than you would have if you sat down and you know wrote out every one of your thoughts so um yeah uh paid off this time we'll see how it goes next time all righty Brooklyn, what do you got um yeah so i go like when i get put into these rooms i tend to go into the matches blind i don't know any of the categories or any of the answers or whatnot it's kind of go based off of that entirely um this is the match that i've seen in recent memory where the competitors felt pretty contained to their to their strengths. Um, they didn't try to like induce any kind of categories or whatnot to like maybe get them to go on a wrong answer. So I thought it was pretty contained in that sense. But um, fucking Jesus, I really don't want to see Cam or either of the Caleb's because all of the Kingsmen in jokes, and it's just gonna be them like beating up on each other, and it's just it's like. It's like watching like twin brothers that you uh, like younger younger ones of yours like they're they're fighting and it's like I don't know like I don't know really who has the okay anyways I'm that's that that during my time they were kingsmen I think they'll just always be kingsmen in, in my heart in my heart but um yeah I'm not looking forward to that one well we're gonna get it but guys that'll wrap it wrap it up for today with another great episode of uh, Fan Zone for you. Uh, no debate. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure you, Tim usually tells you what what's coming out next. Uh, well, I, mean, I just told you what's coming out next. It'll be like Caleb and Caleb. I'm, I would hope so. I don't know the schedule. I just work here sometimes. But uh, you know, thank you everybody for showing up. Jacoby Bancroft, Cameron Holzman, two judges up here, Kirk Kalkowski, and Brooklyn Vale, and everybody here at Multiplex keeps this show going. Uh, little to no distractions or bad things. Everybody, please be well. There we go. Thank you very much. Please come again. We have a lot more groceries.